God said, go, all authority has been given to me. If God is talking to you tonight, and if you know that one person, go, speak life to the deadness. Great. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Gareth Bolton. You're going to have an hour of British English. Um, <coughs> but I'm sure you're used to that anyway. But before you have British English, we're going to hear from uh, my friend Francis. Um, just before he comes, um, this is the newsletter of Tender Heart, the organisation that he began just 10 years ago in India. Uh, he is part of a charity called Amen, uh, which I started about uh, 20 years ago. We've got many partners around the world, and he is one of our partners with his foundation, Tender Heart. This is our charity brochure, and uh, you'll see on the back here some of our partners, which include none other than Mr. Francis Kumar himself. And if you want to know more about our ministry, which I'm not going to talk about tonight, I'm going to talk about the world, you want to know more about what we're involved in, that's my wife, Malou, who's actually gone to the other conference there, and me, get one of these cards. There's our own personal website, uh, which has, I think, about 80 to 100 messages on it and some videos. There's our charity website. There's a YouTube ministry link, and there's also our email details. Uh, I have been with Operation Mobilization now for 25 years. Uh, before that, as you heard, I was a teacher but when we were serving on board our ship, OM, I don't know how much you know about Operation Mobilization, we've had a series of ships, mission ships. First one was Logos, then we had Dulos, then we had Logos 2, and now we've got Logos Hope. And Francis and Alison, who became his wife, he's married to an English lady, they live in India, uh, met on Logos 2, where my wife and I were also serving. And God's given him a tremendous vision an opportunity in India. So what we'll do first, before even Francis comes, can we show the DVD? This is, uh, we only just received this through Dropbox, so this is as fresh as they come. This was filmed in India, uh, part of his ministry that we see there. So this will give you an introduction, then he'll come and take over and talk more about his ministry. I lost my father when I was six years old. Then I was sent to Christian boarding school. Uh, from that day onwards, uh, I had a, this vision and dream. When I grow up, I want to help uh, children, those who don't have parents, because I, I myself lost my father, and I know what it is being uh, fatherless. So I have this uh, dream and vision uh, since my childhood. From a young age, I wanted and I had the desire to go out and help people, to help them come up in life. And when I was 22, I joined the Logos 2, and I was on board the ship, uh, the Christian missionary ship, for two years. And during the time on board that ship is where Francis and I met. And uh, that's how our relationship grew, and I, I heard about India and the people in India, and, um, and that's how the desire and the heart grew, grew to be in India with Francis and to start Tender Heart Foundation. In 2008, we started a, a Art Foundation so that we can uh, give an education to the underprivileged children and also teach skills to 
जो घूमे I'm uh, so grateful for this uh, privilege given to me here to come over here and also I want to thank the church and the pastor associate pastor for giving invitation to come here I want to thank Gareth 
and Mallu for bringing me here. So very briefly, I will share what God is doing in India so that he can pray for us. <coughs> you have seen the little uh, video. <coughs> okay. We work among the, a people group called Dalits. <coughs> you know, in India, there are 300 million people in India. Have you heard about Dalits before? Do you know that? Uh, you know, you, you don't know how India is divided <laughs> into caste system. Can I take this opportunity to explain that? Uh, India is a great country, and uh, we are blessed to be born in such a wonderful country. Uh, India has uh, <coughs> several, uh, nearly over 4,000 people groups, I think, uh, and uh, 430 languages spoken in India. 430 languages. <laughs> but uh, according to Hinduism, there is a god called Brahma. So people in Hinduism believes that god called Brahma created the universe. <clears throat> so people believe, Hindu people believe that when Brahma created the universe, there are four groups comes from his body, Brahman's body. The first groups comes from the mouth of God. Because they come from the mouth of God, they're the top group. They're called as the Brahmins. And today, most of the people in India, those who are educated, uh, are from this group, from the mouth of God. There is another group which comes from the arm of God. Because they come from the arm of God, they are called as a warriors, Kshatriyas. And there is another group which comes from the thigh of God. They are called as a Vaishnas. They do agriculture. They have a lot of land and they give a, uh, build houses and rent people. There is another group which comes from the feet of God. They are called as the Sudras, so they do day-to-day -day work. And there is another group, which is fifth group, comes from under the feet of God. They are called as the Dalits. Because they come from under the feet of God, these top three groups <laughs> believes that God has rejected them. God has kicked them. So in order to Dalit people to earn salvation, they have to serve the Aikas people. Then only they can earn salvation, not this life, maybe in their next life. So, <clears throat> and God is work, work, uh, at work among these people in India. Hundreds, hundreds of people are coming to know the Lord. There is a big open door for these Dalits, people to come into Christ. Because in, in Hinduism, they are not treated equally. But in Christianity, we know we all are created in the image of God. So that is the message we are communicating. So most of our ministries among this people group called Dalits, you know, according to statistics, there are 2 million street children in India. Almost 19% of the boys and girls never go to school, never have an opportunity to go to school. Okay? Uh, almost about 48 children out of 1,000 die before the age of five, you know, because of uh, not properly fed or, you know, not taken care medically, okay? So we are working among these Dalit children because Dalit children will never get an opportunity to go to an English medium school. Even if they want to go, they can't because parents are not educated and they can't get an English medium. It's very expensive in India. 
poor people can't afford to go to a private school. So Tender Heart Foundation, we provide free education. Okay, we, uh, at present we have a four daycare center, 220 children are studying with us. And uh, if God willing, this June, we are going to start one more daycare center in a place called Gokak uh, in North Karnataka, in India, South India. And Gokak is the most unreached place in India. And there's a number, highest number of HIV and AIDS people living in Gokak because of the temple prostitution in that area. I will explain to you more. Okay, we focus four areas of the child development. One is educational. Uh, all our education is in English. You know, it's when the child joins us, it's quite difficult because parents are not educated, parents don't know English, children don't know English, but children are very smart. Within a two or three months, they learn English. So we focus on educational. We also focus on spiritual. Every day, half an hour, we take opportunity to tell about Jesus. We tell stories, we teach songs about Jesus. It's amazing. Okay? And most of these uh, children come from the slum. They don't have a proper breakfast. And sometimes they may have, don't have a dinner. So we, we, we make sure that we provide lunch, a very good lunch. And uh, most of the slums come, uh, children come from the slum. Never, never, never had an opportunity to play with other children with the toys because they don't have toys at home. So in our daycare center we have a toys where we help other children to play with other children without making any fighting or... Uh, <laughs> and uh, along with all this uh, we also provide uh, all the notebooks, textbooks and uh, two sets of uniform. We have to provide the uniform because when the children, when we started most of the children used to come without proper clothes. Sometimes they used to have only shirt, there was no knickers. Sometimes they used to have both, but you know, some children used to come good, some children used to come not good without clothes. So that's why we decided to give them a uniform. So we give them a two sets of uniform. And most of these children don't know when their birthday is. So they don't have a birthday. So once in a year, we celebrate everybody's birthday one day. <laughs> so we make a, a big cake and uh, we uh, cut the cake and give them a, a present. You know, when they go home and they say, hey, today is my birthday. <laughs> yeah. And uh, last uh, eight years, we have sent over 1,000 children to the mainstream school. These are the children who were on the street begging and bringing money to the parents you know but today all of them are in the mainstream school going to school seeing them blesses our heart you know when we started a school about 80, eight years ago it was quite difficult to get children when we went to the parents in the slum and said we are going to start a school and parents said if you start a school our children are not going to come because these are the children who has to go on the street beg and bring money. So the parents were worried losing money. So but we started uh, with three children and uh, after a month we invited the parents of these three children to come to our school and see what they have learned. And these children, three children started to tell their name in English. 
my name is so and so you know and they started to sing a b c d and they start counting 1 2 3 and parents start crying and then they thought wow we never thought our children can learn english you know from 3 went to 11 and then after 11 we had a 15 children and today we have 220 children studying with us and over 1000 children in the mainstream school okay and through this uh, a children ministry god is at work this is a name called uh, puja the first time when myself and my wife we were walking in the a market the puja came you know asking for some money and uh, looking at her we felt very bad and he said you know we asked her do you want to go to school she said yes i would like to go to school and uh, we brought her to our school and put her in our school and uh, she learned about jesus and she went home and told about jesus to our parents and our parents thought jesus is a teacher in a school because they never heard the name of jesus <laughs> so they came and said oh we want to see this jesus teacher called jesus because my daughter gets so excited whenever she talks about jesus then we took that opportunity and shared about jesus and the whole family accepted jesus christ as their personal savior and both father and mother they took baptism as a result of the daycare center we have a church nearly over 40 people are attending just last uh, few two months back nearly eight people took baptism so we have a relationship with four churches people those who come to know the lord through the daycare center go to those schools and god is doing an amazing things through the children and parents are coming to know the lord yes so we also have uh, this uh, medical project uh, just about a, about one and a half year two years ago i got a phone call from islam saying that uh, you know one mother is called and told me that uh, my son is died can you come and bury my son he was just uh, uh, eight weeks old just eight weeks old so myself and my pastor along with pastor we went to the slum and uh, took the baby and we buried and uh, i was not, i don't know the reason why the baby died and i don't know what i don't wanted to ask so the next day i went to the parents and asked why did the child die and the mother said last three days we uh, my baby had a fever and uh, i said why do why why you did not take the baby to the hospital she said i did not have the money she did not have a, a dollar to take baby to the hospital and i was not there i was in uh, out of station well, then uh, when they told me this story i was very heartbroken and i went home i started to pray lord how can we help these people you know when i am not there you know and uh, god gave me this idea of making a medical card so we have a medical card and with that medical card they can go to the local doctor the doctor whom we know so the, if the parents if the child is sick parents don't have money they have this medical card they can take to they take the medical card and go to the doctor and doctor will treat them for free so once in a month i go and pay pay the money and today 150 children are benefiting with that uh, projects and so many lives have been uh, saved because of this uh, medical project a small act a very little small act but it saves life we also have a children club we go to islam 
uh, once in uh, three days in a week, we invite all the children to come uh, play. So we, we have a Indian cricket, uh, football, basketball, volleyball, because these are the children, they don't have toys. So we go three days in a week and we play with them for an hour or two hours. Then we ask them to sit in a circle and we tell them the story about Jesus. And God is changing their lives. And so many young people's lives have been changed because of this uh, children's club. Okay? And uh, we also take, uh, uh, we teach. We have a friend, uh, Gareth Nosin. Uh, he, uh, his name is John. He comes to India uh, two times in a year to teach tennis to the Islam children. And last year, June, a Goa State had a tournament, tennis tournament. And our kids, our children played in the tournament, you know. And all the, uh, the, the people who came to watch were surprised to see the slum people, slum children, playing a tennis against the rich kids. <laughs> uh, even though we did not win, but we played. <laughs> uh, and there are a lot of young people in the slum who drop out high school or have some education, but don't have an opportunity to get a job. So we teach them three months computer, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and things like that. And today, nearly 60 young people have got the job because of uh, computer science. And as I told, we also work among the people group called Devadasis. Devadasis means servant of God. In India, if any girl wants to get married, the parents have to pay money. And most of the poor parents who, who has a three or four girls, but don't have money to marry them, they sell them to a god called Renukamma. So all through their life, they have to live as a prostitutes. And uh, so we have a, to rescue those women, we have a tailoring school. This is a, a six month course. At present, we have a, four tailoring centers, three in Goa, one in Karnataka. Okay, uh, the, we have started the fourth one last year, October. This is a six month course, a solid course. After the six months, they no need to go anywhere else. It helps them to stand on their own feet. Okay, and last 10 years, uh, over 1,300 girls have been trained in tailoring. And these are the girls, never, some of them never been to school, some of them are widows, lost husband. So God is really working among these people. I'll just uh, tell one story of uh, Kempama. Kempama has two sisters and one disabled brother. And Kempama's mother wanted her to go to be a Devadas. Kempama's mother wants to sell her, sell to the temple. But Kempama knows that if she go and be a Devadasi, a temple prostitute, her life is going to be short because some of her friends in her own village died because of being a Devadasi. However, well, our, well, our pastor was doing a ministry in the village and she asked our pastor if she can come and learn tailoring. And we took her to learn tailoring. And during this time, she accepted Jesus Christ as a personal savior. And she is the first one, the first girl accept 
to accept Jesus Christ as our personal savior in our own village. First Christian. And the moment she came to know about Jesus Christ, she started to tell about Jesus to others. And today, we have a Bible study in our village. And nearly 17 people came to know the Lord through Kempama. She's never been to school. And just a few months back, I was in a church where Kempama goes. Everybody is giving a testimony. I came to know, I came to know about Jesus through Kempama, through Kempama, through Kempama. I was so blessed. And, uh, and uh, today <coughs> we gave her a swimming mission and the uh, whole village are uh, coming to know the Lord. Our pastor regularly go and disciple the people there. We also provide a, a finance to start a rehome. You know, people, uh, those who want to start their own business, we help with them the finance. We just give them $150, that's all. That is a, a small money for you, but for in India, it's quite a big money. So we provide the loan. And this is a Meenakshi. Uh, about a year ago, a Meenakshi was just sleeping on a street. She doesn't have a father or mother, no brother and sister. She was a temple prostitute. She can't do any more prostitution because she contracted with HIV and AIDS. She was just lying on the road, street, in a village. One of our pastors went to do the ministry and he saw this lady, Meenakshi, was lying on the road. And uh, he went there and uh, woke her up and she was, my pastor was talking to her and she said, last three, three days, I have not eaten food. Can you bring me some food? So the pastor has to go and get some food and give it to her. After eating, then he started to share about Jesus Christ. And uh, she told to our pastor, why you, you did not come 10 years before and tell me about this Jesus? You know, however, she accepted Jesus Christ as a personal savior, you know, and uh, we, uh, we gave her money to start, uh, start her own shop. That is her house there. She lives there and she, whatever the income comes through her business, she lives with that money. And uh, about six months ago, she gave her, uh, she took baptism and she is actively involved in the church. We also provide uh, clean drinking water filters to the people that were living in the slum. We also have a church planting ministry where we work among the unreached people group. And North Karnataka, especially Belgaum, is the most unreached place in India. And uh, if you go to the, some of those villages, even I have experienced myself, you know, a few years back when we were doing ministry, uh, this is where I got vision. You know, when we are doing ministry in a village, we went and asked a lady, do you know about Jesus? And she was so confused and uh, started to think, oh, he's not living in this village. Maybe you may find him in next village, you can go there. And that is the time God spoke to me that we need to have a church planting team so that they can go out and reach people. Uh, North Karnataka is totally unreached. And uh, this is uh, Pastor Vijay Kumar. Uh, Vijay Kumar always wanted to be in the ministry, but never had, had an opportunity to be in full-time ministry because of the finance. 
His parents are poor, he has to take care of the parents and he has a three girls. So from Tender Art Foundation, we are supporting him $50 a month. And about uh, four years ago, he went to a most unreached place in, in Karnataka, Chalakere. Uh, the place name is Chalakere. Poorest of the poor lives in that village. And last four years, he's able to have a, a church planting in 15 villages. He has a new, uh, three new churches. And nearly 200 people came to know the Lord through his ministry. Over 60 people took baptism last four years. So God is building his church in India. And uh, uh, most of the, we work among the village pastors. Most of these village pastors serving the Lord in a more, most remote places. Some of the pastors even don't have any electricity. So uh, about seven years ago, a pastor from a village came to Goa uh, along with a girl who wanted to join OM. So I went and received this pastor, took him to my house. And then I, that day I was so tired. Then I asked this pastor, have you seen the sea before? Have you been to the beach? And he said, oh, no, 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 I've never seen the sea. I want to go and see. And I was so tired, however, I took him uh, by bike. And uh, we parked the bike. As soon as he saw the water, as soon as he saw the sand, he started to run. He just left me. He was so happy, so excited. And he's from a village. And then he started drinking some water. And he said, no, water tasting like a salt. Who is putting the salt in the sea? <laughs> I was really heartbroken. And I started to pray, Lord, there are so many village pastors who has not seen the creation. You know, and I said, I prayed to, that day I prayed, Lord, if you provide a finance, I want to bring about 50 pastors to Goa and they have a pastor's conference. I prayed almost for a year. And what, we, what encouraged me more was, this pastor who visited me in Goa went back to the village. And after three, uh, three months, after three months, I met him. And this is what he told me. Brother Francis, thank you for taking me to see the sea. Last three months, every Sunday I'm preaching from the Bible about the sea. <laughs> How the waves are praising and worshipping God. And that really touched me more. This pastor never been to a Bible college. Just looking at the sea, he started to meditate and he's preaching. And you know, then I started to pray. And last six years, we are bringing about 150 pastors from the villages to Goa. Goa is, a, Goa is like a for the most of the Indians coming to Goa is coming to a foreign country because of the culture and nature and lot of beaches. It's like an Indian coming to America. <laughs> so same like that Indians going to Goa is a big thing. It's like a tourist. And uh, what we do, do during these three days, we have a, a good time of teaching God's word because what we teach them for three days, they take and go and teach in their churches for a year. What they learn in three days, they use it for whole year. And we also have a time of praise and worship, and uh, we also have a talent night where different pastors can come and uh, show their talents. And uh, after day, we take them for a picnic because most of these uh, pastors never seen the sea before. 
and we invite their wives also. Just la last November, we had in a conference. One pastor's wife came and holding my hand, she crying and crying. And she said, I want to thank you, Brother Francis. Thank you, thank you for inviting us to come here. And I said, no, no, you don't thank me, thank God. And uh, she told Brother Francis, we are serving the Lord in our village last 15 years. They don't have any financial support in a village. Sometimes no electricity, no water. So they have buffaloes. They milk every day, sell the milk, and they do the ministry. And she said, last 15 years, we never been out of our village. She never traveled by train. First time she traveled by train from our village to come to Goa. And she said, we have been married for last 15 years. You know, my husband never hold my hand publicly, publicly. But last three days, my husband never left my hand. We are eating together, studying God's work together. And uh, we first time they played as husband and wife on the beach together. And this is what, in a small thing, and make a big difference in their life. And uh, just want to uh, uh, thank you uh, for listening. <laughs> So continually pray for us, you know, if at all you happen to be in India, you are most welcome to visit us. If God is calling you to India for a short term mission trip, contact the pastor. We'll be very happy to have you. We need volunteers to help with the children, with computer school, teach pastors, whatever the ways you can get involved, you, you are most welcome to join us. Thank you again for giving me this opportunity. Uh, it's a dangerous place to go to simply because it can change your life. Uh, seriously, if you go there and you see what's happening, and the invitation's open, many people have actually already visited. If you want to support it financially, as I said, Francis never asks anybody for any money, you can do that through our charity Amen. If you go on the website, you'll see where you can donate and where you can designate money to support their work. I have uh, all these bits of literature. Please come and... Uh, See me afterwards, and we'll be very happy to share with you. Right, you've still got energy. Still got a bit of energy. Okay. I just want to briefly share with you what God is doing in the world. Um, not that I have an inner inside track on this, but I have had uh, quite a lot of uh, experience. So we'll start with the longest answer that Jesus ever gave to a single question which is in Matthew 24. The disciples were saying, wow, this is such a beautiful temple. Isn't it wonderful? And Jesus said, the day is coming when not one stone will be left on top of another. And they said, when's that going to be? <laughs> Woo! And you've got all of Matthew 24 where Jesus is preaching about his own second coming. And uh, you know the first thing is there's going to be deception. Then he talks about natural disasters. But there's one verse, this one verse, that I want to bring to your attention. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay? That's a very measurable, very clear statement. Once this gospel has been preached in the whole world to all nations... 
Then the end will come. That's the nearest barometer, I think, in the Bible that we have in terms of how to estimate the end of the world. Once the gospel's been preached to all nations, well, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel has been preached to all nations. There isn't a country in the world today where there is not some form of Christian witness and some sort of church. I couldn't have said that 40 years ago. We didn't know what was happening in Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Iraq, Maldives, Afghanistan. Today, we know that in all those places I've just mentioned, the gospel has been preached and there is a church. So, that being the case, do we have a contradiction here? Do we have a problem? Because it says once the gospel's been preached in the whole world, then the end will come. Well, the gospel has been preached to all the nations, but the end hasn't come. Why? The answer is in just one word in that verse. And the word is this word, nations. Because you see, when we talk about nations... We think geopolitical nations. We think you know, United States, Philippines, India, France, Russia, the different colours you know, on a world map. That's not what this word means. Some of you will know that the Greek, because the New Testament was written in Greek originally, that gives us the English word nations, is the word ethne, from which we get the word ethnic. So, it's not geopolitical nations, it's every ethnic group. Every people group, every tribe, if you like, every group that has these things in common, it has its own language, it has its own geographical location, and it has its own culture and customs and traditions. Now, when you're talking geopolitical nations, how many are there? Well, if you look at an atlas, it usually works out at about 230. Five, depends how you do the counting, okay? How many people groups in the world? At least 10,000. How many of those 10,000 have actually heard the gospel? Well, approximately two-thirds. Approximately 6,700 have had the gospel preached. That's the good news. The challenge is still... A third of the world's people groups are waiting to hear the gospel for the first time. So we've actually still got a fair way to go. Of course, God can work suddenly and instantly, <clears throat> but in the normal course of things, there's still a great need for people who are willing to serve amongst the unreached, who are willing to go where no one else has been, like Paul said, not building on anybody else's foundation, but going there and sharing the gospel. The other verse is this one. A very famous missions verse, isn't it? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. <clears throat> the reason I put this up is I was thinking about this recently. I thought, Jesus said this, of course, but he didn't say it about today in the United States, February the 5th. 2018. He was talking 
approximately 2,000 years ago when he said that. He looked out on the world of his day, and in his day he said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So I thought, oh, what was the world population when Jesus said those words? So I did a bit of research, and I found this. When Christ was on the planet, the world population was 170 million, okay? Which is less than the population of Brazil today. So he looked out when there were 170 million people, and he said the harvest is plentiful. What do we say today? And look, I just also plotted how the world population has grown. It wasn't until 1650 it reached the first half million. It didn't reach the first billion till 1830. It wasn't until 1930 it reached the second billion. It was 30 years later, 1960, it reached three billion. And it wasn't until 15 years later that it reached four billion. 12 years later, and now we're coming into the lifetime of people here. 1987, well that's pretty, it reached 5 billion. <laughs> 1998, it reached 6 billion. 2017, last year, it reached 7 plus billion. Now notice how the world population has increased over a decreasing period of time. But if Jesus said the harvest is plentiful then, well, what do we say today? So, there's the world. Have a look. What's the first thing that strikes you when you see a map of the world? Anything? Ocean. Well done. Thank you. The ocean. According to Trivial Pursuits, which of course is the dictionary of all authority and knowledge, it's called Trivial Pursuits, 67.1% of the world is covered with water. Just over two-thirds. You say, well, very interesting, Gareth, but I don't think we're called to evangelise the fish. <laughs> no, here's the statistic that is quite remarkable. Did you know that 80% of the world's population, that's four out of every five, live either on the coast or are accessible from the coast? 80% of the world's population. Australia, which perhaps is a bit of an extreme example, <laughs> in the middle of Australia, what they call the outback, what's it, about 10,000 people live? Very few. All the cities there are coastal cities. But actually, many people can be reached from the sea. I live in London, the capital of the world, okay? This is a beautiful city. How far is London from the sea? Well, if I drive and there's no traffic, hour and just over an hour but Logos Hope this big 430 birth liner appeared right in the middle of London not far from the London Eye near to Canary Wharf how come? River Thames <clears throat> from the sea all the way up right into the heart of the city of London Europe is crisscrossed with rivers. We've just launched a riverboat that's going all around the rivers. So it stops next to Paris. Wow, what a needy city. Then it goes to Strasbourg and then to Frankfurt. All the big cities which are reached from the sea through rivers. So here's an idea. 
What do you think of this? If you want to reach the world, get a ship, fill it full of Christians, and you just go from one port and stop there for three weeks. Send them all out to the prisons, the hospitals, and the schools, the churches, do a few open airs, and then move to the next port. Of course, it's been done, and it is being done. But I'd say this, any serious consideration of reaching the world of the gospel has to consider some sort of use of the sea. In fact, the Koreans, the Korean church, has got basically a Christian navy. They've got loads of little boats all going around, you know, the islands, setting up, uh, berthing in the islands, and having a great time. Now, there's something that has happened that's very dramatic over the last hundred years that perhaps you haven't realised. hundred years ago, we'll say, what, 1900? 90%, 90% of all evangelical Christians were found here, where we are this evening, and here, where I come from, Europe. 90% were found in North America and Europe. That means 10% were found here. Today, there's been a complete reversal. In just over a hundred years, we now find that 80%, 80% of evangelical believers are found in what we call the global south. They're found in South America, Latin America. They're found in Africa, south of the Sahara. And they're found in Asia. This is a profound and significant change. So that now, Europe is the only continent in the world where the number of Christians is declining vis-à-vis the population. There's spiritual decline, big time, where I come from, okay? Whereas a hundred years ago, this was the, you know, the heartland. 19th century, where did all the missionaries come from? Most of them, UK. Hudson Taylor, founded China in that mission. C.T. Studd, founded Wake International. David Livingstone went out to Africa and walked across it and opened it all up. He was an evangelist, a, a, a sort of a botanist, a sociologist, all wrapped in one. But he shared the gospel as he went. The 19th century was the century of the advance of missions through the United Kingdom. 20th century, second half, was the advance of missions through the United States of America. 20th century. I'm with OM. OM founded by, anybody know? George Verla. George Verla from New Jersey. Started as a 19-year-old George Verla. 19, it's the age of some of you. He started Operation Mobilization. We're on the same team as him. In a few months' time, he's 80 years. There's three and a half thousand of us around the world serving God. One American teenager. And then while he was doing that, there was another guy called Lauren Cunningham. Anybody know what Lauren Cunningham started? Okay, Youth with a Mission. Have you heard of that? Have you heard of Youth with a Mission? YWAM? Y-W-A-M? Young Women After Men? Oh, sorry, no, no. no sorry, sorry. Youth with a Mission. Let's get the acronym there. Youth with a Mission. Lauren Cunningham. That's even bigger than OM. Have you heard of Campus Crusade for Christ? Who founded that? Bill Bright? Where's he from? 
United States. And what about the biggest of all? It says Wycliffe Bible Translators. Have you heard of them? They want to translate the Bible. Who founded that? William Cameron Townsend. Where did he come from? You're right, the United States. The 20th century, missionary advance came from this part of the world. 19th century came from there. Where will the missionary advance come from in the 21st century? I'll answer that question in a minute. So, 100 years ago, most 90% of Christians here. Today, 80% of Christians here. South America, Africa, and Asia. So let's visit one of these places. We'll start off with South America. There we are. Dominated by Brazil. <clears throat> okay, give you a little test. You can answer up. Look at that map. There's only two countries in South America that do not have a border with Brazil. What are those two countries? Pardon? Good grief, you're fast. Did you just look at it and see, or did you not? I'm studying. Pardon? I'm studying. Oh, sorry, sorry. Right. Very good, yeah. <clears throat> I never get anybody to ask that question that fast. So Chile, this incredible long, thin country that goes from hot to very cold, and of course, Ecuador. Every other country has a border with Brazil. Friends, if we were here uh, 100 years ago, we would look at that map, of course, we wouldn't have it on the television, would we? But we'd look at the map, and you, I tell you, as a Christian, you'd be praying, Lord, please, please send the gospel to South America. It's a dark mixture of conservative Catholicism with animism and spiritism, and where they just need to hear the gospel. And you what? God heard our prayers. You're now looking at a part of the world not just that receives missionaries, it does still, and there's still an opportunity. But you're looking at a part of the world that is sending missionaries. Latinos, they're great, you know. They're, they've got this, uh, what can I put it, a party spirit. Especially in Europe, where we're sort of a bit down, you know, emotionally repressed. <laughs> Tell a group of Latinos, it's great, they're full of the joys, you know. And they've got a significant role in world missions. I was preaching in, um, here. That's Iceland, okay? I was preaching in the capital city, Reykjavik, uh, in a big evangelical church there. And a guy was preaching in Icelandic. Uh, he gave a very good message, actually. Someone translated it. Uh, and he also spoke English, this guy. So after the service, I went up to him. And I was looking at him. I thought, well, he's not Icelandic. I mean, he's not fair at all. And he's certainly not English. I said, where are you from? Brazil. Brazil, a Brazilian, handling Icelandic language, handling the English language, serving God in all places, Iceland. Friends, missions is no longer the West to the rest, okay? It's everybody to everybody, from everywhere to everywhere. And we're seeing what, actually it's called reverse mission, okay? The places where we sent the missionaries then are sending them back to the places where the missionaries came from. God is a, there's a guy, I met a guy recently from, was it Ghana in Africa? He's been in the UK for 20 years. I said, no, what do you do here? He said, well, I'm a missionary. I said, wow, you're an African missionary serving in the UK? He said, yeah. I said, how did you come to be here? 
He said, well, um, he said, it's an interesting story. I became a Christian. My family became a Christian. My tribe became a Christian because of British missionaries who came out way back, scores of years ago, to Africa. He said, and then I'm reading in this article, and the country that sent the missionaries, United Kingdom, now has become something of a spiritual backwater. And many people there don't even believe in God. And God said to me, hey, you, you have a debt of gratitude that you can pay. You have a significant part to play in taking the gospel back to where it came from to bless you and your family and your tribe. And so he seriously felt God's called him to go from Africa, reverse mission, back to Europe to share the gospel. And that's what's happening. We're seeing all sorts of people from all sorts of places coming. Okay, so there we are. There's South America, dominated by Brazil. I could tell you many stories from South America, but uh, there really isn't time. You've really been here quite a while. I don't want to keep you too late. Oh, Luis Palau said this. Although Latin America has only had the gospel for 130 years maximum, it sent out over 8,000 missionaries. He said this some time ago. I reckon it'd be 10,000 missionaries now, actually. Have you heard of Luis Palau? Okay, he's uh, sort of the Billy Graham of Latin America, although he's getting on. He's in his 80s now as well. <coughs> Billy Graham's 100 this year, isn't he? 100 this year, Billy Graham. Still alive, just. <laughs> okay, let's move to the other global south. We'll go over to... Here we are. There's a map of Asia. Now, where in Asia could we visit? Oh! We're going there, are we? Mongolia! As you can see, no ship is going to visit Mongolia. <laughs> What's the capital of Mongolia? How's your geography, friends? Capital of Mongolia? Ulaanbaatar. There you are, that's a good quiz question, isn't it? Why am I showing you a map of Mongolia? For this one simple reason. 25 years ago, do you know how many Mongolian believers there were? In the whole world? Four. Four, 25 years ago. How many Mongolian believers today? Well, in excess of 40,000. Praise the Lord. In 25 years. You've got to realise that the Mongolian Empire was an empire that put fear into the heart of the Chinese. In fact, they were so frightened, they built a great wall all around China to keep out the Mongolian hordes. Heard of Genghis Khan? Okay, the guy famous on the horseback, you know. All Mongolians love horses to this day. And so the Chinese back then were frightened of being attacked, so they built the Great Wall. Of course, today, the whole situation is completely reversed. China is a great superpower. Mongolia is a relatively small, sometimes poor country. But God is at work. 40,000. And do you know what? I was, um, I was asked to speak at a church planting conference in London a few years ago now, I was asked to speak. I said, sure, I'll go there. And there was this little group, and they're planting churches in the UK. They planted two in London, one in Manchester. Do you know what was unusual about them? They were all Mongolians. Mongolians? In London? Christians? Yeah. Because although they've only had the gospel for 25 years, they've immediately understood 
the basic principle that we have an obligation, a duty, a privilege of taking the gospel beyond our culture, beyond our borders, to those who haven't heard. When George Burwell went forward at a Billy Graham meeting in Madison Square Garden in 1955, he came to Christ very dramatically as a teenager. He thought, right, I've got to share the gospel. Where should I go? He got out a map. He thought, well, the US, you know, so many churches here. Where's the nearest place? The nearest place was Mexico. So George went with two others, teenagers, down to Mexico to share the gospel, which was then very closed, Catholic, and there were some evangelicals even in prison. That was the beginning of Operation Mobilisation. A young American seeing the need and the opportunity to get beyond his own culture and take the gospel to the nations. Mongolians are doing that. And do you know what? This has got to be one of the most exciting things I've heard recently. <coughs> South Korea. Anybody know any Koreans? Well, look at that. See? It's Koreans. Did you know that South Korea is the second biggest literary sending nation in the world? It's number two. Who's number one? United States. <laughs> Still number one. Still number one. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be number one for long. I'll tell you why in a minute. But it's number one. Number two is South... Now, we have to say South Korea, don't we? It used to just be Korea. This was the Korean Peninsula. How come we got this division? End of the Second World War, they thought, how are we going to sort out Korea? So, guess what? The Americans took South Korea. Communists took North Korea. The legacy of that lives on today, all right? So you have this massive Christian presence in Seoul. And by the way, notice how near North Korea the capital is. In Seoul, you have four of the, no, five of the biggest evangelical church denominations in the world. Biggest Methodist, biggest Pentecostal, biggest Presbyterian, and two others I can't remember. But just across the border... You have another country with a, a rather sad record that is the number one country for persecuting Christians. Did you know that? That's been on the persecution index at number one for I don't know how many months. That's what's published by a group called Open Doors. Okay? Yeah. Now, South Koreans would love to go to North Korea with the gospel. No way, friends. There's a DMZ here, and I've stood right on the border there, and the tension's unbelievable. Tragically, some families are even split. They've been split for decades, because when this border was drawn up, some were on one side, some were on another. Who is going to take the gospel to North Korea? Are Americans? No. Are Brits? No. Are South Koreans? No. But there's one country, one country, that can get in to North Korea... You don't need a visa, and because of the similarity in language, within six months, you could preach in North Korean language. Anybody know which nation it is that can get in there without a visa, and within six months, can preach the language? No? You're going to be shocked. Mongolia. 
Mongolia. <laughs> so this is modern missions, isn't it? Mongolians, who've only had the gospel 25 years, okay, they're very recent Christians, are going into North Korea and sharing the gospel. Hallelujah. Yeah. This is missions today. A complete shake-up and mixture. And then we've got all the refugees. Germany, under Angela Merkel, pastor's daughter, opened the country to a million refugees. You remember that? From Syria, a million refugees. Unbelievable. Uh, what's been the result of that? Well, there have been some bad results, but let me tell you one good result. Trinity Evangelical Church in Berlin has gone from 100 members to 300 in two years. Who are the other 200 members? I'll tell you now, they're mainly Syrian refugees, saved and baptised. And of course, you know, us Europeans typically, oh, we don't want all these immigrants, you know, send them back home, you know. Christians should never respond like that. Here's an opportunity, fantastic opportunity, to reach out to people who are, who've lost everything. Who don't, you don't need to tell them, do you have a need? We know we've got a need. Do you think you have an anchor in your life? Well, not really. Islam hasn't helped me much. I was asked to take some meetings in Scotland, all right? Scotland. And the person setting them up said to me, Gareth, they said, there's one meeting. You may not want to take it. I said, why? They said, it's a feeding program for refugees. I said, oh, so what do you do? They said, well, they're mainly from Eritrea. You know Eritrea, East Africa? Eritrean refugees, we feed them. I said, well, are you, uh, are you doing anything else? They said, no. I said, well, how about? I said, I'll come, but could we do it this way? Could I speak to them for 20 minutes first, and then they will eat? They said, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. So, one of the, and they're all Asante, because one of them was a born-again Christian, so he was my interpreter, because he also spoke English. And uh, so we had them, we didn't know how they were going to react, okay? They were a, quite a, sort of a mixed crowd, and all sitting there. I got some gospel music in Eritrea, and we played that, played that at the start. And then I spoke through interpretation. And they just listened, I, and I spoke for 20 minutes, and you could have had a pin drop, and I stopped because I felt I'd been going on long enough, not because they were sort of all, you know stumps or something and they were looking for the food and then we fed them. Since then, a number have come to Christ because the guys oh, by the way, the guys running it this is Scotland, were Indians from the south of India they were Tamil pastors, this is missions okay, Scotland, Tamil pastors, English preacher Eritrean refugees, alright <laughs> so now, some of them are baptised are saved and are baptised Oh yeah, I, I can't go without mentioning China. How many Christians in China? I have no idea. Depends which uh, magazine you read. Lowest end is 60 million. Upper end is double that, 120 million. So, here comes my prophetic statement. <clears throat> and of course you can tell the prophet's true because if what they say is true. <laughs> 19th century, British missionaries really were the ones taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. 20th century, American missionaries taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Prophetic statement, 21st century, by the end of this century, I believe it will be overwhelmingly Chinese who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And actually, friends, it has already started. 
You come on our ship and you'll see a whole range of Chinese from mainland China serving God. And they're serving God in, a, in very dedicated ways. I think because, as you probably know, the Chinese church was born out of persecution. The history of the Chinese church is sometimes extreme persecution for those who follow Jesus. Not so much today, I mean there is still persecution, in fact it seems to be racking up a little bit again, I noticed. But, we were, I was with, a, my wife and I were with a girl on the ship, Chinese girl, we were out walking, and I said to her, what was it like growing up in China? She said, terrible. I said, well, she said, uh, it was terrible because my father was never at home. Oh, I said, I'm sorry, was it broken home? Was it problems with uh, alcohol or drugs? Oh, no, no, she said, nothing like that. Uh, he wasn't at home because he was in prison most of the time I grew up because he was a pastor. I said, your father was in prison for being a pastor? She said, yeah, most of my life that was the case. And she said, you know what, she said, it's very hard because of the single child policy there was just this girl and her mother father was hardly there and she said you know what? I saw my parents dedication to Jesus Christ and she said I determined then that because of their example to me I also will completely dedicate my life to Jesus Christ and today she's one of the leaders uh, she was in OM and now she's serving back in her homeland in China for Jesus I think what we're going to see will be coming from China. Because, friends, they've grown up in persecution. Uh, how would you and I do in persecution? Well, I know how I would do. I'd do very badly. I'd be scared. I'd probably mentally collapse or something. But if you've been brought up in an atmosphere of persecution, if you've got used to that way of practising church and knowing your life is on the line, I'll tell you what it does for you. It doesn't just affect your faith that way, it affects your faith that way. Okay, It's not just numbers of Christians, it's depth of Christian experience and trust. And here is a very powerful statement from the Chinese church. The hostile nations we enter may torture us and starve us, but they can do no more than we experienced in our own country for many decades under communism. We're not afraid to bleed, for our bodies are merely temporary tents to be used in the Lord's service. We're not only ready to die for the gospel, we are expecting it. Wow. That's kind of rare language for us, isn't it? But that's... You see, there's many ways you can grow a church, friends. There's many, there's many uh, theories. You can have seeker-friendly services, make it as friendly and as easy for them to come in as possible. Or you can try cell groups. You have a cell group here, multiply, split, one cell group here, multiply, split. But I tell you, in the New Testament, one way that definitely grows the church is persecution. Because the church gets scattered. The church grows. As I say, it doesn't just grow this way. It's not, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a mile wide, maybe, but also a mile deep. Because they've learned what it really means. The cost, the cost of following Jesus. Very interesting. You're doing well, friends. I'm not going to go much longer because you've been listening to a long time. India we've heard a lot about. Most Indian Christians are in the south. We want them to go up to the north. Oh, India. Here's a fact about India. 
The population of India increases by 1 million people every three weeks. 45,000 every day. 45,000 Indian babies were born today, friends. 2,000 every hour. So in the last hour we've been here, 2,000 babies have been born in India. That's one baby born every two seconds. Woo! The harvest is plentiful. <laughs> Incredible. <coughs> two more countries, but we're not going to look at both of them. I'll finish with just one more. Nepal. Amazing story. What's the capital of Nepal? Kathmandu. If you want an encouraging quiet time, sit in Kathmandu and face Mount Everest. It always... You lift up your eyes to the hills. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> oh, finally, let's go here. Because you've been very good, you've been sitting a long time. I know you've had a busy day, many of you. Let's end up with the country nearest to where I live, which is Turkey. Why am I showing you a picture of Turkey? Well, it's quite significant. Did you know that Turkey is on every page of your New Testament? Mm. You say Turkey? I love getting a good because the only time I find turkeys is in a list of unclean birds. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, this is Asia Minor. It was only called Turkey in 1923 after uh, Kemal Ataturk, okay? It was Asia Minor. You are looking at one of the great centres of the early church. Ephesus, there. Galatia, there. Smyrna, now called Ismia. And Tarsus, there he is, where Saul came from. Antioch, where the believers were first called Christians. All seven churches of Revelation you're looking at behind me. And yet, do you know how many Turkish believers we knew of in 1960? Only you need two hands to show you. In the whole world, we only knew of ten Turkish believers in 1960. This was the powerhouse of the gospel. Paul went backwards and forwards here, planting churches, establishing elders. By 1960, Islam came and just... Well, what did Islam find, by the way, when it came in 400 or 500 AD? what it found. It found churches, leaders that were involved, more interested in money, Leaders are more interested in buildings. Leaders are more interested in hierarchical structures, clergy and the laity. And the zeal and the vibrancy of the early church had gone. So when Islam came, it just... Ooh, I mean, Muslims didn't, didn't come to kill Christians. Of course, some Christians got killed. They, they wanted to, 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 to rule the country and put some of the established leaders in place underneath them. So by 1960, there were only 10 Turkish believers. Here's the question. How many believers are there today in Turkey? Well, I asked our leader. He said, well, conservative estimate, he said, um, 5,000. That's better than 10, isn't it? But wait a minute. Population of Turkey is 70, 80 million. You're looking at, behind me, the least evangelised nation in the world. It's the bottom line. 5,000 out of 70 plus million? Over here, there's hardly very few Christians. There's a few more in Ismia. You've seen some growth there, but actually the rest of it. Now, if you look at the map again, you'll notice something very significant. 3% of Turkey is in Europe. Did you realise that? Look, up here. 
3%. Bordering Greece and Bulgaria, I think it was called Thrace in the old days, here up here. Gallipoli, First World War, here. This is Turkey, 3%. 97% is in Asia. Therein lies the dilemma for Turkey. Which way is it going to face? Is it going to face Europe, the European Union, which means you must guarantee freedom of religion? You have to if you're going to be part of the European Union. Or is it going to face the East and Islam and all that means? We need more workers in Turkey. We've got quite a big team there actually, but the work is huge. And the opportunities are many. For the first time, I saw in a prayer letter just a few months ago, we're seeing older, single Turks come to know Jesus. That never happened before. In fact, in Isnia, you can even, if you're careful, hold some open-air meetings. Because it's such a big international... could never do that here. But here, because it's an international city. They've got Alpha... Have you heard of Alpha Courses? Have they reached here? The Alpha Course? It's a discipleship course from the UK. They've got quite a few of those. I could say much more, but I did decide I would end at 8 o'clock. I'll just leave you with a question. That actually, every Christian should ask. And very few Christians ever do. And the question is this. Lord, where do you need me to be? Now the culture says, this is what you've got to do. You've got to go and get a degree. Then you've got to get a good job. Husband or wife. Get yourself a nice house. Get yourself a car. Have some kids. Nothing wrong with that. But what has God said? Has God said that's what you're to do? To stay where you are? To go through the same process as everybody else? He may well have said that, but have you asked him? Because this is a most serious, important question. God, where do you need me to be? What's your plan? I don't want to miss your plan. I don't really care about what plans other people have for me. What do you want me to do? Where do you need me to be? Because we've only got one life. You don't get a second chance. This is it, friends. And we don't want to. We don't want to miss the best that God has for us. So I just want to encourage you. If you've never done it before, say, Lord, come to you and just show me where do you need me to be in this world. I don't know what be. He wants you here serving in the church. That's not God's second best. What God calls you to do is the best. The second best is when you don't do what God is calling you to do. And who knows, if I come back in a few years and do this repeat seminar, your place will be empty. Where's she gone? Where has he gone? All right. <laughs> They've gone from the church and they're serving the Lord in another place, in another culture. Maybe even a group that's never even heard the name Jesus for the first time. Let's pray. Just be quiet for a moment. I mean, I know this is a seminar, but actually we're touching on some pretty profound, fundamental values. We've been talking about our lives, our lives, this life that God has given me, one life. Lord, we thank you that you gave everything for us on the cross. You left the glory and comfort of heaven. If anybody ever experienced a greater cultural 
shock and incarnation, Lord, it, it cannot have been anybody other than you. And we thank you that you took that step, that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Thank you that you came to this God-forsaken, God-rejecting planet. And you lived amongst us and you loved us and then people took you and they nailed you on a cross and you died a cruel, unjust, painful death so that we might have forgiveness from sin. We might have a new life. We might have a new hope in our hearts. Lord, what can we do? How can we possibly thank you adequately other than giving our lives to you and saying, Lord, you know me, my weaknesses, my failures. Lord, I am with you. Here am I. Send me. Lord, we pray you'd help us to discover where it is that you need us to be. And then having discovered that, whether it takes a little while or perhaps many months, that you'll give us the grace and the will to follow you the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Yeah, sure. Yeah, does anybody Any open it up for a little bit? I know that was a lot uh, to take in. Thank you so much. Does anybody have any questions or anything for here? Yeah. Have you been to Norway before? Have you been to Norway before? I haven't. Where? Uh, well, the Middle East itself, I've been to most of the places. I've been to Qatar, Bahrain, Dubai, uh, Muscat. But then, also for weeks in the least, Egypt, Sudan. Yeah. Why do you ask? Uh, are you originally from there then? Which place? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Hallelujah. Yes. Yes, I have been there. And uh, there are actually some very, very encouraging things happening. A friend of mine was travelling between Iran and Iraq. He wasn't on holiday, by the way. He was in a car. And the car broke down. Can you imagine that? He's driving along, right on the border, where all the Kurdish, there's a group called the Kurds. Have you heard of them, the Kurds? World's largest people group without a home. So he's driving along, the car suddenly, he can't move the steering wheel. Middle of nowhere. Gets out, opens the, uh, we call it bonnet, what do you call it? A hood. Hood, yeah, hood. It's funny, same, same thing on the head, isn't it? Bonnet and hood. So he opens it up, and uh, he's sitting with the, the steering con, you know, and suddenly, you know that feeling that somebody's looking at you? He's under the cover of this hood. And there's a guy standing there, you see. And so he says, And the guy says, uh, Have you got the books? Says, Pardon? Says, Have you got the books? He says, I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm talking about. He said, look, I've come all the way down from that village for the books. He said, what books? Last night, he said, in our village, we had a discussion and we came to the conclusion that God doesn't like us. We haven't got a country. We've been pushed around. And then we discussed further to find out why God doesn't like us and we found out why. And do you know what the answer was again? God doesn't like us? Because we don't like each other. And the Kurds have got actually different factions always fighting. 
So that was the end of our rather gloomy, depressing discussion that night. God doesn't like us because we don't like each other. So we then went back, you know, after that discussion throughout the rooms, and then many of us had the same dream. And in this dream, we were told that there's a book, and if you can get hold of it and read it, you'll find that there is a God who does love you and who can help you know forgiveness for all that's wrong in your life. And then this guy said to my friend Mike, he said, and he said, this is the time, this is the place, and you are the man with the books. He said, the villagers have sent me down here because they said this was the time and the place to get them. Well, Mike, of course, guess what? He had in his back of his van a whole load of gospels in this guy's language. Incredible. So he thought, whoa, this ain't a vehicle accident so much as a divine appointment. Yeah. So he brings out all his gospels, gives them to this Kurdish guy, who then takes as many as he can. Oh, and the guy had a whole fistful of money, by the way. Everybody give money for a copy of this book where they can know forgiveness from God and, and love to one another. So he goes back, you know, this great pile. And of course, my friend Mike's still got the problem with the car. Turns on the ignition, guess what? No problem, drives off. These are some of the remarkable, unexpected God things that are happening in places like the Middle East at the moment. <clears throat> Muslims coming to Christ in Mecca. They're going on the pilgrimage, the Hajj, you know, the place where you, you know, you, you, you really want to get close to God. They're finding God there. Unbelievable. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 10 years than the previous 1400 years. Unbelievable. And certain groups, Iranians, for instance, are just so responsive to the gospel. The Iranian diaspora around the world seems to be come to Christ. Filipino pastor told me that uh, you know a couple had come to Christ just the previous week. Sorry, any more questions? I'm just going to keep telling stories. Yes. I was going to say um, or ask about Europe. So you said that there's a lot. I've, I've been there, and there's a lot of depravity. What do you think the main cause of the gospel kind of being taken out? Mm, well, I think that's a good question. It's an easy answer. I think there's lots of bits of answers. Um, if you imagine two bottles of champagne, you've taken the cork off one uh, last week, and you take the cork off one now. The one you took the cork off last week is still champagne, but it's flat and dull, isn't it? The one you take the cork off now is fizzing and bubbling. You know, we've had the gospel since 400 AD. Countries like the Philippines, where my wife comes from, have had the gospel for about 100 years. So partly it's become a cultural thing to be Christian. Well, it was at that stage. But then uh, postmodernism, humanism... And one thing I found when we were doing open airs in London, we were doing open air meetings, I talked to white people, white Brits. And do you know the answer they gave me for not believing in God? More often than not, they said, we don't believe in God because of science and evolution. I had that so many times I kept hearing the same argument. And of course the truth is, the Bible supports science and science supports the Bible. The Bible doesn't really support evolution. But that's their thinking. They've heard in school, you know, we come from monkeys, we're just, you know, evolved. And so they've, they've never just discovered, they've studied it, but they've just adopted it. So we've got that problem. 
we've got some very nasty anti-Christian propaganda from actually theologians. People are pulling the Bible apart and saying this isn't true, this isn't true, this isn't true, this isn't true. Critical of the Bible. Um, it's a potent mixture. You put all this together, plus materialism, that probably is a problem here as well, you know, the subtle seduction of money and being wealthy and being successful, and a culture that's very inward looking, all these things together, uh, and the science of the church. I remember Margaret Thatcher, former Prime Minister, once saying, Where is the church? <laughs> I don't know what the issue was, but she said, Where is the voice of the church? And there was silence. She basically opened the door for some Christian leaders to say something, but nobody did. And all these things together have, have brought us to the state that we are in now, which is huge ignorance of the gospel. Huge ignorance. One guy he, he, I saw on television, he said, he said, I came out of school learning more about other people's religions than my own. So he knew what Diwali was, he knew what Ramadan was, but did he know who Jesus was? All religions are going to be treated equally, you know. Plus the sexual revolution, add that into it as well. You know, we're now into transgenderism, gay marriages and all the rest of it. And the church has become very frightened of saying anything, you know, or upset anybody. I have to say, one of the reasons Adolf Hitler came to power is because the church didn't say much. Well, the church was frightened, didn't say anything. Sorry, it's just a few things, but it's part of it. How do you think that, like, the problem can be solved? Problem can be? I mean, I mean, obviously Jesus. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the answer. Yeah. But, like, how do you think the best way to go about evangelizing Europe, even though they have the gospel, in a sense? Well, I think, we, I think fear is one of the problems. You know, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So if God hasn't given it to us, where does it come from? It's fear of speaking out. It's fear of preaching the gospel. The E word, evangelism, is, 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 is much lower on people's agenda than it used to be. You know, people... Almost there's a cultural pressure that's, that's come that's preventing Christians, I think, from speaking up. That's, that's part of the answer. Can I do this really quick? I'm going to yeah. just say, we're going to call it a night. If you have any yeah. questions, maybe you feel like you can hear it a little bit. Uh, thank you all so much for coming tonight. I hope that you all will, if you all know the rest of the sessions that we're offering the rest of the week, uh, you can grab a car on your way out. There's several different options every night. Uh, and so I hope to see you again. And definitely uh, Saturday night, Night for the Nations here, where we'll be hosting several international churches and just... Uh, it's going to be a great night. Sounds, great I wish I could be there. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's going to be, <laughs> awesome, be an awesome, awesome yeah. night. So, cool. Well,